Last week, we started the third section of Paul's letter to the Romans, which, if you were with us, you know, is fundamentally about Paul exploring questions like, what about Israel? Why is Israel not responding to Jesus? What was the purpose of Israel in the first place? And while those questions might sound fairly dry, if not completely irrelevant to us, who I'd venture to guess are not on the whole asking such things most days, well, for Paul, they were anything but. Chapter 9 begins, as Meredith highlighted last week, with Paul expressing the extreme emotional anguish he was feeling over the fate of his fellow Jews, who were, she reminded us, his literal friends and family members, those he had grown up with, worshipped alongside, prayed with and for. Far from being a dry, irrelevant theological question, for Paul, this was more akin to the relational strain many of us have felt over the past five or ten years or so, as long-term relationships with friends and family and fellow church members have been strained over the question of what it means to follow Jesus today. In response, when we were live, Meredith invited us to talk about what that has meant and felt like for us. How have the rise of Christian nationalism and changing church cultures affected our relational worlds? And in the breakout group that Meredith and I were in, there was a really great discussion around that topic. And afterwards, there also was a really interesting response from several in our group, a concern that they had been too harsh or not nice enough in how they had responded to Meredith's prompt and that they needed to apologize for that harshness. Now, I suppose I should leave the possibility that someone really popped off in one of the other breakout rooms, but uh, somehow I doubt that. <laughs> but that instinct to fear that we haven't been nice enough or that we've been too harsh or too judgmental or not shown enough grace to other Christians who disagree with us, it's an interesting starting point for what we're going to explore together today in Romans chapter 10. Right out of the gates, I want to acknowledge that there is certainly a theme in the Bible of grace, kindness, not judging, of imperfect people being included in God's family, absolutely. And there's also a competing theme where the prophets sometimes literally call down fire. John the Baptist calls the Pharisees a brood of vipers. Jesus calls his opponents hypocrites and whitewashed tombs. And Paul encourages the Corinthians to throw a misbehaving member out of their midst. As with so many themes in the Bible, there is a tension here. And to go too far one way or the other would be a problem if what we're trying to do is live in a way that aligns with what the Bible says. Today, we're not going to talk so much about the first theme, the grace one. We're going to lean into the other. You've been warned. Got my copy of Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God right here. <laughs> Not really. The section of Romans that we are going to talk about is all about how Israel seems to have fallen away. That, as chapter 11 will put it, their branches have been snapped off God's olive tree. And passages like the one we're going to explore in chapter 10 seem at first glance to advocate taking the, let's call it the being nice route. Because aren't we all on the same team? But I think a deeper look might leave us in a different spot. So this is what Paul says in Romans 10, verses 4 through 9. The Messiah, you see, is the goal of the law, so that covenant membership may be available for all who believe. Moses writes, you see, about the covenant membership defined by the law, that the person who performs the law's commands shall live by them. But the faith-based covenant membership puts it like this. Don't say in your heart, who shall go up to heaven? in other words, to bring the Messiah down, or who shall go down into the depths, in other words, to bring the Messiah up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. 
That is the word of faith which we proclaim. Because if you profess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. A first reading of this passage might lead us to think, as we consider the other groups of self-professed Christians that Meredith asked us to consider last week, might lead us to think that we need to be pursuing unity with them. It says, after all, that all who profess with their mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in their hearts that God raised him from the dead will be saved. And those heavily armed bros marching around with muscular Jesuses on their shirts, well, don't they believe in their hearts that God raised Jesus from the dead? I mean, his image is literally covering their chests. <laughs> the people I no longer feel safe talking about God with, don't they confess with their mouths that Jesus is Lord? Aren't we all somehow on the same team? Isn't Paul in these verses drawing a contrast between what Moses said, that you have to do the right things in order to be a part of God's covenant family, and what Paul himself believes, that you just need to have faith. You need to believe the right things. Some translations very much seem to make this the point by translating the Greek word telos in verse 4 as end, as in Jesus, the Messiah, is the end of the law the end of Torah. And if that's the case, then what Moses says in verse 5 about doing the commands of the law would clearly be in contrast with what Paul goes on to say in the following verses when he starts talking about the Messiah being with us and belief being what God is looking for. The law is over, so doing its commands, also over. And now we just believe in Jesus and everyone who says they believe is in the family. That's how many read this passage. It is not what Paul is saying. I go into far more detail in the backdrop, so if you want me to show my work a bit more, you can check that out. But for today, we need to understand two things. First, Paul is not saying that Jesus is the end of the law. That would, as the scholar Richard Hayes put it, make no sense whatsoever in the context of Romans and what Paul says about the law elsewhere in Romans. Instead, when Paul says Jesus is the telos of the law, he means Jesus is the climax of the law, the fulfillment of it, the pinnacle of Torah. It's more, N.T. Wright says, arriving at the destination Torah was driving us towards, not Torah being itself finished or over. That's the first thing we need to understand, that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the Old Testament Torah. The second thing we need to understand is that everything Paul says in verses 5 to 8, with a few of his own modifications, it's all from one six-verse chunk of Deuteronomy 30. And if you are able to have Deuteronomy 30 and Romans 10 open at the same time to be able to compare and contrast, that would probably be helpful. When we were live, we had both up on the screen at once so people could look at both of them at the same time. But if you don't, I will read them for you as well. Here's what Paul says in Romans 10 verses 5 to 8. Moses writes, you see, about the covenant membership defined by the law, that the person who performs the law's commands shall live in them. But the faith-based covenant membership puts it like this. Don't say in your heart, who shall go up to heaven? In other words, to bring the Messiah down. Or who shall go down into the depths? In other words, to bring the Messiah up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we proclaim. And then here is Deuteronomy 30, verses 11 to 16. We spent a whole sermon looking at this passage a few months ago, actually. It says this, surely this commandment that I am commanding you today is not too hard for you, nor is it too far away. It is not in heaven 
that you should say, who will go up to heaven for us and get it for us so that we may hear it and observe it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will cross to the other side of the sea for us and get it for us so that we may hear it and observe it? No, the word is very near to you. It is in your mouth and in your heart for you to observe. See, I have set before you today life and prosperity, death and adversity. If you obey the commandments of Yahweh your God that I am commanding you today by loving Yahweh your God, walking in his ways and observing his commandments, decrees and ordinances, then you shall live and become numerous, and Yahweh your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to possess. So you can go back and forth to compare them again if you would like. But Paul begins in Romans by quoting verse 16. Obey the commandments, love God, walk in their ways, and you will find life. And then he backs up to what Moses said immediately before that, about the commandments not being too hard, not being out of people's reach. Put those two together that Jesus is the fulfillment of Torah and that Paul is quoting Moses throughout these verses. And we can see more clearly what Paul is up to. He isn't setting up a contrast between trying to do Torah and simple faith. Not at all. He is explaining how Jesus is the fulfillment of Torah. Moses, Paul is pointing out, had promised a day when God would put the Torah in the mouths and the hearts of the people so that they could do Torah and enjoy the life God promised would come. Jesus has brought that about. Notice how in his parenthetical commentary, Paul talks about the Messiah being up in heaven or in the depths of the sea, while Moses says God's word, the Torah and its commandments are up in heaven or beyond the sea. And then Paul says that if we confess Jesus is Lord with our mouths and believe in our hearts, we'll find salvation. While Moses promised that God would put the Torah on the people's mouths and hearts, Jesus is Torah, Paul is saying, the fulfillment and perfect culmination of it. Torah is not over. It is perfectly expressed in the person of Jesus. And doing Torah is not over. It is made possible for God's people when Jesus is on our mouths and in our hearts. Paul is not, again, contrasting having faith with doing Torah. He is saying that the way in which we truly do Torah is through faith. We've said this before when we were going through Deuteronomy together, but the goal of Torah is something important for us to remind ourselves about right now. It was never the goal for people to make sure they did every single thing exactly right. The goal of Torah was to create a community that matches who God is, a people who reflect God's character to the world around them. And it is Jesus, Paul is saying, who fully reflected God's character, thus fulfilling the purpose of Torah. And it is Jesus who now empowers those who put their trust in him to be exactly the sort of community that Torah was always intending, to fulfill Torah, not abandon it. And again, that doesn't mean that we're doing all the things we read in Leviticus. It means to live in ways that are in harmony with and reflective of God's character in our time and place. Leviticus is about how the people of Israel could do that in their time and place. We do the same thing in the sense of reflecting who God is to the world around us, but we do it differently because of our different cultural and historical moments. And this is how we can make sense of that theme of harsh critique that goes right alongside the theme of non-judgmentalism. 
This is why John the Baptist can say this to the face of the Pharisees in Matthew 3, verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Therefore, bear fruit worthy of repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. It's why Jesus can say this in Matthew 23, verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you lock people out of the kingdom of heaven. For you do not go in yourselves, and when others are going in, you stop them. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cross sea and land to make a single convert, and you make the new convert twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. The harshest words in the Old Testament and New Testament are for the leaders who lead people astray. And you might be saying, well, sure, it's all well and good for Jesus to say something like that or for a prophet. I'm just a regular person. Well, here's what Paul himself writes to a group of maybe a few dozen or so regulars in Corinth. I don't think they were meeting on Zoom or listening via podcast, but this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother or sister who is sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Do not even eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging those outside? Are you not judges of those who are inside? God will judge those outside. Drive out the wicked person from among you. In each of these examples, the people being denounced in very harsh language are people who, in the case of the Pharisees, would be those most proud of their devotion to Yahweh God the God of Israel. And in the case of 1 Corinthians, those who would certainly be confessing with their mouths that Jesus is Lord and who claim to believe in their hearts that he was raised from the dead. So what gives? Is Paul being inconsistent? Anyone who believes will be saved, but make sure you live right to or else. I think this goes back to the idea that Paul was trying to get at of Jesus being the fulfillment of Torah. The goal of Torah again, was to create a people who reflect God's character into the world. Jesus is the fulfillment of Torah because he, first of all, perfectly did that, reflected God's character, and second, through the Holy Spirit, is making it possible for those who put their trust in Jesus to do it too, like Moses had promised would be coming one day. Confessing that Jesus is Lord and believing that God raised him from the dead cannot be separated from doing Torah. Not in the sense of being perfect or doing everything in Leviticus, but in the sense of living in a way that is in harmony with and reflective of God's character. As both John the Baptist and Jesus said, making the same point a different way, you will know them by their fruit. Someone can claim Jesus and put him on a t-shirt, but when the very image of Jesus put on that t-shirt as a muscular, gun-toting American bro is in conflict with the character of God, well, it's like Paul said, not all who are from Israel, you see, are in fact Israel. That was chapter 9, the chapter before this. It's like Jesus said in Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. 
Go away from me, you who behave lawlessly. Notice, you who behave lawlessly. You who don't fulfill Torah. Because you show no interest in reflecting Jesus' character to the world. Showing that you don't actually believe that Jesus is Lord at all. Because if you had, if you did believe that, you would be interested in reflecting that character in your day-to-day life. God's goal has always been for a group of people to be reflecting that character to the world. It was the point of Torah, and the expectation hasn't changed. So what do we do? We could get on the internet and start yelling at strangers who disagree with us. I hear that's a popular strategy. (laughs) I don't think it's one that too many of us are tempted by, though. In our actual lives, I think there are two main things for us to take away from this. The first one, and the one we're going to spend more time on, is what it means for us personally. Confessing that Jesus is Lord and believing in our hearts that God raised him from the dead means trusting that a life that reflects Jesus' character to the world really is the best way to live, the way that leads to life. So it's important then for us to get to know this character more and more and to work to reflect it more and more in our day-to-day lives. Because let's face it, there are other sermons happening this weekend that convey a slightly different account of God's character, let's say, than the one we talk about at Pomona Valley Church. Some of our friends and family members are probably listening to those sermons. How do we know that we are right? Well, first, Paul talks often in Romans about the Holy Spirit's work inside those who are following Jesus. Our value of openness at Pomona Valley Church is about being open to the work God is doing in us and in the world. There's a humility and an intentionality involved with having regular practices that ask us to listen to the voice of God inside us and what that voice might be leading us to. And, well, if you don't have any practices that do that, that open you to the Holy Spirit's leading and allow you to listen to what God is saying to you, well, I'd encourage you to find some that can fit sustainably into your day-to-day rhythms. Second, we have the story of Scripture, which tells us who God is and what God is up to in the world, especially as we look at the character of Jesus, who fully reflected God to the world. This is why the Bible and the story of the Bible continue to matter, and why here we are trying each week to more fully understand it, and to take it seriously and how it might influence and shape our lives when read and applied correctly. Our God is a God who has revealed their character to us, so that we might live in harmony with it. And then third, We, as Jesus told us to, look at the fruit. What sort of fruit is coming out of our lives? What do we see in the lives of those who claim to follow Jesus? Is it good fruit or not? Does it lead to life and justice for oneself and for the world? Or does it lead to violence, paranoia, lies, fear? We want to be careful here, of course, not to expect perfection. And it's not like there's a sharp dividing line between two camps Unless you're Jesus separating sheep from goats, I suppose, but well, I'm not. But I think there is a you know it when you see it factor here, especially if we're doing what we can to get to know Jesus better, as I outlined in the first two things. I also think this is where a community of people who are trying to reflect Jesus to the world is pretty important because a group listening to what Jesus is or is not saying is usually going to be better than an isolated individual at it. And so that's the first main thing we can do in response to all this. We can get to know Jesus's character and look at the fruit. That's where I wanted to spend most of our time today on our own actions. 
But there is the question of what this means in our relationships with other people who claim to follow Jesus, but who don't seem to be reflecting God's character into the world very well. There certainly seems to be, in Paul and the Old Testament, a responsibility on the part of a worshiping community to address such things. If our goal is to be a community that reflects God into the world, then it's a big problem if parts of the community are reflecting some other God or some distorted Jesus. That kind of matters. Now, this can go so very wrong and has, of course, so many times. But I think it's something that we as a community are going to need to explore together at some point to have a conversation about what would be the way in which an internal to our church issue might be addressed together in a way that reflects who Jesus is. But then there's a question of what we as individuals might do. And there I don't know that the Bible is as clear what our response should be. I don't think it's our responsibility necessarily to confront a friend or family member. It's certainly not our responsibility to yell at strangers. I think God might, though, ask us to have such a conversation with someone close to us. It's possible. Maybe to ask us to say with as much grace as possible, I see you saying or doing these things. I don't think they reflect who Jesus is. And that's a scary thought for most of us. And it's unlikely to end well. (laughs) Most of the prophets in the Bible who had similar messages didn't get listened to either. There's one story, though, where Paul confronts Peter and Peter sees that he's been wrong and turns back. But if God doesn't ask us to confront in that way, they certainly don't ask us to seek unity either. There's one verse where Paul tells the church to treat them like a pagan, which I take to mean since they are reflecting a false Jesus to the world, treat them the way you would any person who is following a false God, whether that God is money, power, or a distorted false picture of Jesus. Live towards them in a way that reflects the Jesus you know, with the hope that that might serve as an invitation for them to find, or maybe refind, a God who offers life. I suppose we could sum that up by saying that while it might look different from situation to situation, relationship to relationship, we're called to love them. In our time together, we had a three-part response, where we first reminded one another of who God is by listing God's character traits and attributes. And second, we picked a trait that we wanted ourselves to reflect more in our own lives and as we interacted with the world around us in our day-to-day existence. And then third, we brought to mind and made our own list of those we knew who we wish were reflecting who God is more. And we prayed for them that they might return to a God who gives life and bring that life and justice to the world around them. We then closed by celebrating communion together, as we do each week. And this week we highlighted the reality that one of the things that communion tells us about the character of God is that sacrifice for the sake of others and for the world is central to their identity. It is central to who the God is that we are called to reflect to the world around us. So however difficult this topic is and however many pitfalls there are, it's important to remind ourselves, and I think communion does this well, that the end goal is not triumphal rightness, but rather sacrificial humility and love. May we be a people who reflects those qualities to the world and to the people we love. Amen.